the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Whether you're listening from far away or next to beautiful Seneca Lake, we hope that through the reading and proclaiming of Scripture, you hear God's wisdom, challenge, and blessing for you today. If you're able to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9.30, we at Hector Presbyterian Church would love to share Christ's peace with you. Our second reading comes to us from the Gospel of Luke. Listen, at the crossroads God's wisdom cries. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who clothed himself in purple and fine linen and who feasted luxuriously every day. At his gate lay a certain poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. Lazarus longed to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Instead, Dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. While being tormented in the place of the dead, he looked up and saw Abraham at a distance with Lazarus at his side. He shouted, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am suffering in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things, whereas Lazarus received terrible things. Now Lazarus is being comforted, and you are in great pain. Moreover, a great crevice has been fixed between us and you. Those who wish to cross over from here to you cannot. Neither can anyone cross from there to us. The rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. He needs to warn them so that they don't come to this place of agony. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They must listen to them. The rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead were to go to them, they would change their hearts and lives. Abraham said, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. The word of the Lord. Imagine walking alongside the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, your eyes drifting over the rocks at the water's edge. There, bend over and pick up a sand white shell. Careful, its spines are quite sharp. The shell is only four inches long. If you were to crack it open, you would find a sea snail. Along the creature's back 
runs a pale gland. Inside this gland is a single drop of liquid that smells a little bit like garlic. If you rub this liquid on a piece of cloth and then expose the cloth to sunlight, you'll see the small stain turn yellow, then green, and then blue, and finally rich purple. In your hands, you are holding the source of royal purple, the most costly of dyes. Purple is precious. Purple is power. The Emperor Nero once had a woman flogged and took away all of her property because her purple gown suggested that she might be a political rival to his own rule. Purple dye might make you rich, but it won't be easy to make. These snail shells are becoming rarer and rarer, hunted nearly to extinction. After all, you'll need about 250,000 of these sea snails to produce one ounce of dye. Jesus begins his story here. Once upon a time, there was a certain rich man who clothed himself in purple, a man who could afford the most expensive material in the known world. He feasted every day, even when food was scarce in other parts of the same city. He lived in his own gated community for crying out loud. Rich doesn't even begin to describe him. Once upon a time, a man with more money than God ignored the beggar at his doorstep. When the rich man died, he went to hell to endure eternal torture because he was so greedy. Moral of the story? Share your toys, kids. Write your checks, fill out your pledge cards. The end. Nothing more to see here, keep moving. But Jesus' stories never work that way. There is always more to see. So take another look. Notice that the rich man, whom Jesus does not name, knows the name of the beggar, Lazarus. For years, leaving home or coming back, there was Lazarus. He was a fixture of daily life. Lazarus, with his stringy, matted hair, his dirty face, his oozing sores. Poor, poor Lazarus. The rich man knew of him, but did not know him. He looked at him, but never truly saw him. Imagine how weird it would be if for an entire day, everyone who crossed your path averted their gaze, refusing to look you in the eye. Personally, I'd rush to a bathroom mirror to check if I didn't have some gruesome pimple about to burst. Now, imagine if no one looked you in the eye for a week. Pinch yourself. Are you really still here? Mark Horvath 
started the nonprofit Invisible People after witnessing the impact of denying eye contact to a stranger. On the streets of Los Angeles, Horvath saw a homeless man. Nothing unusual, just one of over 36,000 homeless folks who live in that city. But when a child handed him a pamphlet, the man recoiled. What? You can see me? How can you see me? I'm invisible. Years of no one looking him in the eye and no one responding to his voice had convinced this homeless man that he was invisible, a ghost. Lazarus is no longer invisible, no longer a background character to a rich man's life. The rich man can see him at Abraham's side in heaven. Oh, the rich man's tongue aches for water. His lips crack in the infernal heat. He calls out, but not to Lazarus. Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Man, are you kidding me? Even in the afterlife, you still see Lazarus as lower on the social ladder whose place is to serve you? Dude, you're dead. The way you used to look at people no longer applies. And hey, if there was a social ladder, you're no longer at the top. Our rich man reminds me of the ghosts from C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Bored and preoccupied, these ghosts leave their shadow town for a day trip to meet their friends from life. Except their friends aren't ghostly. They're solid and strangely bright. Come, live here with us, each bright spirit invites. But one by one, the ghosts refuse. One will not give up his cynicism. Another cannot give in to wonder. And yet another ghost hides in shame. They cannot conceive of the world in terms other than the ones by which they lived. Terms like, someone is out to get me. Or you can only trust what you prove. Or no one really loves me. This, for Lewis, is hell. And the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Perhaps that's why Abraham told the rich man that a great crevice had been fixed between them, preventing anyone from crossing. Perhaps the chasm is of the rich man's own making. Regardless, Abraham is wrong. Not about Moses and the prophets. He's right. The words of the Torah, the words of the living God spoken through the prophets are indeed enough to guide us in loving the Lord our God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. No, Abraham gets it wrong 
about the distance between heaven and hell. It might be uncrossable for Lazarus. It might be uncrossable for the rich man, even for Father Abraham himself. But it is not impossible for Christ. Christ is the great boundary crosser, stepping down from heavenly glory into human history. Christ, the creative word, became vulnerable creation. Christ crosses from life to death and to life again. Impossibility is his strong suit. Christ is there, I believe, in hell. In his hands is a pitcher from the water of the springs of the water of life. He is standing right next to the rich man, just outside of his peripheral vision. If only the man would look away from the heaven he feels entitled to. If only he would look around. But like Lewis's ghosts, he does not see beyond the world as he's always understood it. Or at least, not yet. In the words of the first letter of Peter, Christ went to preach to the spirits in prison. The man who once wore purple cloth might yet hear Christ preaching to him, might yet taste the cool water Christ offers. On this side of the story, Jesus calls to us, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Recognizing the burdens of stress and worry and bitterness are relatively straightforward, but the weariness of living captive within the limits of our imaginations, that's harder to pinpoint. Complacency doesn't feel like a burden because it works for us. It keeps us comfortable, even if we are, in the words of Pink Floyd, comfortably numb. Often we have to be jolted out of our complacency, like when Mark Horvath witnessed a homeless man exclaim that he was invisible. Sometimes it takes a series of incidents over time, moments that make us pause and wonder, what's going on? We might see Lazarus every day, but the day we see a mangy street dog lick his open sores might jar us enough to say, this is not right. Christ is beside us in that moment, waiting to bless us with restlessness. St. Augustine of Hippo famously prayed, My heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. But old Augustine knew what all disciples know. When Christ meets us, when Christ gives us peace, the Savior stirs up a different kind of restlessness, one fueled by hope. Christ blesses us with true comfort, exchanging our numbness 
for the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Troublemaker. Christ blesses us with a holy yearning for a world that reflects God's will, a world where hungry hearts find bread and children's dreams are fed. Jan Edmiston writes from that place of restlessness and encourages us all to embrace this blessing. Recently, Edmiston proposed that churches toss out their carefully crafted mission statements and instead ask a mission question. Her favorite, did Jesus die for this? This question changes everything, Edmiston writes, at least in terms of our business meetings, because Jesus didn't die for most of the things we talk about, policies, programs, paint colors. Jesus did die for opioid addicts, the migrants at our southern border, the homeless people living under a nearby bridge, the lonely retirees who can't get to worship any longer, the terrified kid who realizes they are trans, the unemployed banker who is too ashamed to come to church anymore, the couple trying to adopt a child, the depressed college student, the single parent, the refugee family, you and me. The thriving congregations I know, Edmiston writes, are aware that Jesus died for people, and so people are their focus. Indeed, they see people, not as the world sees them, but as Christ Jesus sees them, beloved. Friends, Christ stands beside you with water from the springs of life in his hand. May you turn away from what captures your imagination and find him there in the face of your neighbor, in the eyes of a panhandler, in discomfort that stirs your soul. May Christ quench your thirst and awaken your hunger so that with the Holy Comforter moving through us, we might truly see, and seeing, act, and acting might reshape the world according to the dream of our Creator. In this restless blessing, there is grace enough to share. So for this grace, let us give all glory and gratitude to God giver of our days, gift of perfect love, power and peace given to us all. Amen.